Amen. Amen. Now you can go ahead and have a seat. If you're wondering why on earth is the whole order of everything messed up, am I really that late? Uh, no, not at all. We're going to push worship to the back. We're going to do some other stuff between now and then. Uh, and right now, uh, I want to talk uh, about one thing that's been consistent for people forever, and that is we have always been in the get combined of pushing limits and specifically combining things that don't typically get combined. And I think this is fault. If you look at like who's responsible for this, whose fault is this? At the very beginning, is the fault of the person, whoever it was, him or her, who invented the helmet. Right? All of this comes back to whoever invented the helmet. Because in whatever village thousands of years ago, there were hills that you should not slide down when it was the icy season because you would smack your face against a tree and your brains would fall out. There were people in the village that were really big that you should not mess with, that you should not say mean things to, or else they're going to hit you and your head's going to break open and your brains are going to fall out. And when they invented the helmet, all of a sudden, these things became totally possible. Right? That's why we have motorcycles now is because somebody invented a helmet so you could have two crashes and not just one. And so since then, since the beginning of human history when we invented the helmet, there have been things that have been combined that should not have been combined. Or at least they can only be combined because there's a helmet. One of those is bull riding. All right, first of those is bull riding. All right, that looks like an amazing hamburger to be. All right, that is a in the future T bone steak that's going to be amazing. Cows are also great, they're fun to look at. They just kind of stare you, stare at you as they drive by, and some of them have big horns. That's pretty cool. However, you do not combine an individual human with that bull when it's really mad. Like, that's just a flat out bad idea. This thing is as big as my car, let's make it angry, and then let's ride it. That's a bad idea. We should not have combined that. Another one of those, I love swimming. I love snow. I love those two things separately. All right? Polar bear swim. Not that great of an idea. I vote no on that forever because I like being, like, comfortable and stuff. Right? No pain. No pain. That is a good thing in my opinion. That is a bad thing. A third thing that shan't ever have been combined, all right? If you went to any of our block parties this summer, you probably had one, two, or 15 hot dogs. But the thing was, is you spread them out over like two months. That's okay. Doing 75 in an afternoon, like that, again, should not have been combined. A helmet won't help you on this one because it's flat out dumb, like, that should not have ever happened, but still, some people who are known uh, by their last names, Chestnut, Kobayashi, all that, they get tons of money because they can fill their bodies with things that should not have ever been combined. 75 hot dogs, that's like a block party. That's not an individual, all right? But, but still, people decided, and we still live in the blessing of this, that we push into things and try to combine things that don't need to be combined. Sometimes it's obvious why they shouldn't be combined, and sometimes it's like, yeah, it just makes sense. What we're looking at today, in our, in our passage that we're going to be in today, is where two things got combined that don't seem to fit together. We're going over two of the flyover books uh, in the Old Testament after the David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den stories. If you're a Christian, you grew up learning these stories. And right before you get to the stories about Jesus, there's 12 books that are really little that have really big implications for our lives. And so we're going to look at two of those, uh, one of them today and then the other one called Obadiah. That's where we're going to finish out 
Augustine. And what we're looking at today in Nahum is a passage that seems really dark. Like there is very little ability to breathe light into this passage. You read the words in Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you're like, somebody is mad and somebody else is going to get smited. Uh, And that's basically the only way to read it. But even in this, we get to see God's ability to bring hope to people. We get to see God's ability to bring light to situations and bring life to us. And we get hope for that because when we go through dark periods of life, when life isn't up and to the right and bright and daisies and sparkles and all that stuff all the time, we see that God is still living in the midst of this, calling us to hope. And so we read passages about defeat, and instead of seeing defeat, we can see hope because God's world is good, God's Bible is good, and God created everyone to know his goodness. God's world is good, God's Bible is good, and God created everyone to know his goodness. It's God's desire to, for us to experience this, for, for us not to just know it because we can read it on a screen and put letters together and form words, but instead we feel it in our heart. So today we're bumping the the message to the middle. We're putting worship at the end because today we're going to close by having our prayer ushers available up front and on the sides because they want to do what's called listen to God for a word for you. We believe that God is alive and active and knows everything that's going on and he knows each of us better individually than we could ever imagine. And within that, he wants to communicate that to us. And so our prayer team, as you walk up today, they're just going to say, okay, God, what do you want to say to insert your name here? And then they're going to report to you what they feel like God has put on their heart straight for you. They don't have to know you. It's better if they don't know you because you know that it's straight from God at that point. And we want to do this because we want to experience God's goodness. We want to experience the light of Jesus coming into our lives. My family growing up was a million percent, and I love you, family. Like, we said it for everything. You are on the phone for five seconds. Before you hang up, you say, I love you. That's just the way that my family is so that nobody, and my sister, me, and my parents, nobody has any doubt whatsoever that we are and I love you family. Like, for forever. Everyone knows we are loved in the family, and that's how God wants us to feel. So he wants to communicate through that to us today with the prayer ushers through a verse, through a word, through a picture. And he wants to do that because, because our world sometimes is just as dark as the passage we're going to read. And what we're going to read here today is from Nahum. This is a section that's kind of like wrapping paper, all right? When you get a, when you get a present, when it's wrapped in paper, wrapped in a nice bag, nobody's excited about the bag. You want to know about what's underneath it. And sometimes you have to dig a little bit farther, but all the times there's something in there that's good. Both my grandparents were born in, uh, my dad's side, both of them were born in 1932. That means they grew up like in the middle of the Depression, which means that everything had like seven or eight uses to it. Like nothing is just one and done. So whenever we would get a birthday present from grandma or grandpa or Christmas, we'd open it up and you'd peel off the paper and you would get grape nuts. Nobody wants grape nuts for presents, but you open up the grape nuts box, which has probably only been used five times, so it can easily be used another 15. You open up the grape nuts, and there's something for you today. So today, as we dig into Nahum, a verse or a, and a book that, that some of us have probably never spent any time in, uh, me included, we're going to see good things. 
We're going to open up the wrapping paper a couple layers, and we're going to see the good things that God has for us as we read past uh, the first layer. So again, to go over the history of what's going on in, in the scope of God's people when this book is coming down. Uh, is there have been times where they're good with God, they're bad, they're running away from him, and then they realize that it's bad to be away, and so they turn around, they run back to God, and then it's good there, and they get lazy, and then they find themselves away, and it's just this cycle of running from God, running to God, running from God, running to God. And where this book happens is at the middle of the point where they're starting to run back to God. And God's country, Israel, is now split into two groups, Israel and Judah. And Nahum is written to the people of Judah because there's this country called Assyria, which is full of bad people who do bad things and treat people really, really badly, that has an opportunity to stop doing bad things. And so the message of Nahum is a message of comfort because it's a message through Nahum to the people of Assyria saying, if you don't stop doing these bad things, everything bad is going to happen to you. And it's a comfort for God's people because they can see what's going to happen if nobody, has, if nobody changes, if nothing ever gets better. This is written 150 years before the Assyrian Empire was crushed and demolished and destroyed. And so we get to see 150 years of them either having the opportunity to respond to God's offer of salvation, God's offer of, I want you to do things my way. And ultimately, they don't do anything, but it's still, it's an offer from God to say, hey, do this my way, follow me. And it's a message of comfort for six reasons. So why is God's comfort good? Why is it something for us to get excited about? And the first thing that we see that's a reason for us to get excited is that God sees us and cares about what's going on in our life. God sees us and cares about what's going on in our life. Nahum chapter 2, verse 1, it says, your enemy is coming. I think that there's identity in that, where God doesn't just look and say, okay, there's this country over there that's going to do something, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be good. I'm not really paying attention. He's, it's like he's grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, hey, listen, your enemy is coming. I know what's going on in your life. I know who your battles are fighting with. I know the people that you struggle with, and that country that you're so bent on waiting to see them destroyed, their enemy is coming. He's saying, I know what's going on. It's the God of the universe who chooses to know people in the Bible and still today chooses to know each and every one of us now. He knows you. He knows your life. He knows the things that happened on the way to church today. He knows what mood you woke up in today. He knows what disposition you have as you sit here right now. And if, if you read the Bible seriously and if you take it seriously, you see a pattern throughout the Bible of God getting really involved in specific people's lives. And they're not always the difference makers. They're not always the people with the authority to do one small decision that absolutely changes everything. It's individuals that God uses, that God speaks to, who could be zeros and God uses them to change everything. Because God knows and God cares. I think we look at prayer for us at Mountain View Sunnyside. We want to be a house of prayer for all nations where prayer is the backbone and the heartbeat of everything that we do. And the only reason that prayer matters for any of us is because God knows us. If we're honest about our ability, our influence, our authority, when it rests within each of us individually, there is, like, if you're going to change the world and do anything great through us, there is no reason why God would ever listen to any one of us Zero. But he does. And the reason that he does is because he knows us and he loves us. And we matter to him. And that'll never change. 
And so we look at God's comfort. We look at an individual word like this where God says, your enemy is coming. You see that God cares, cares about us and cares about what's going on in our lives. Second reason is that God crushes our enemies. So this book is written through Nahum to the country. That's the enemy of God's people. In verse two or verse one, it says, your enemy is coming, we know that, to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, prepare your defenses, and call out your forces. God's saying there's gonna be destruction. There's gonna be a country that, that as God's people are reading this, they're like, all right, that country is gonna get flipped over and knocked down. This is good stuff. And that happens because God is in a positive destruction business. At our old house when we moved in, there were these yucca trees that, that grew up and just were ugly, like absolutely ugly. I hate these things. Uh, and so soon after we got moved in, got everything packed up, like I went on a mission to destroy these things because I did not like them whatsoever. Uh, but the problem is, is you can't just like pull it out like you pull weeds. It's a big ugly thing with a big root base and you have to get under there and beat the heck out of it, and then pull it up individually. And my neighbor didn't know Jesus, uh, and he, so one day he walks over to me, and he knows I'm a pastor, and he's kind of with his walker and stuff, and I'm just going to town on this thing. I think I'm even punching it, I'm hitting it with an axe, I'm trying to break this thing up. And he's like, well, pastors aren't supposed to destroy things. So I looked at him with his walker, I'm like, are you going to help? And uh, he didn't say anything. Uh, but, but that's not a real, like, accurate description of God, because God does destroy stuff in the best possible way. There's areas of all of our lives where, where the devil has stolen from us. Where the devil has crushed us. And what God does is God plunders the house of the enemy. For here at Mountain View, Sunnyside, we call that hell raiders. We want to raid the devil's house and steal back what's been stolen from us. Uh, Micah and Haley are both wearing the Hell Raider shirt today. They didn't coordinate. They just decided, hey, let's dress the same today, and, and that's great. Uh, but it's a message. It's a picture of what God does for us, where he walks into the devil's house and steals back. Where, it says in, where Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 3, he says, Who's power enough to enter the house of the strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who can tie him up and then plunder his house. I love that picture. Tie him up and plunder his house. That's not like sneak off with his good silverware. Right? That is plunder his house. Take whatever you want to take. Steal whatever you want to steal. This is Jesus stealing back from the devil what's been stolen from us. He walks in and he picks up the kitchen table and he's like, this is nice. I'm taking this back to my son or my daughter's house because I want to restore the relationship they have with their family. Walk out to the backyard and he's like, hey, this represents time with, with kids or grandkids watching the future generation. I'm going to pick that up and I'm taking that out. I'm plundering this. I'm walking into the garage where your possessions and the things that you spend money on and Jesus is like, all right, it's my car now. I'm driving this. I'm taking your idea of possessions and I'm taking it back. Walk into the bedroom, lift up the bed. He's saying, I'm going to redeem your sexuality. I'm going to put this back together. And Jesus carries the bed out on his back. He says, I'm plundering the house of the enemy because God crushes our enemies. Make no mistake, when, they, when we're talking about enemies in, in life after Jesus has already come and lived for us and died for us and rose again for us, those enemies aren't people. Uh, there are people that all of us have beef with, that have, have anxiety towards. We see their name uh, pop up on our phone or we see them and we're like, I don't like that person. And Jesus says, I do. I love that person. That's my son. That's my daughter. And so when we're talking about enemies here, we're not talking about people. We're talking about the way that the devil steals from our lives. And so in that, God crushes our enemies. Third thing, 
is God redeems our past and restores our future. We come to God with nothing. People who, who talk about this in the Bible, they talk about trash, they talk about disgusting stuff, bio waste, that, that, that's what we bring to God, that's the original language. And what do we get back? We get an inheritance, we get identity, we get forgiveness, we get power, we get new life, all these things because God redeems our past and he restores our future. And in the midst of death and captivity, there's life. So if you spent 20 minutes on verse 1, here's verse 2. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its splendor. He's using, he's using ag language here, okay? It's like those signs and posters that you see around. Like this verse depends on ag. Uh, so, so he's saying you're, you're going to have a future. There's life here. So as a church, we do this thing called shape journaling where we read the Bible, uh, read a number of chapters from it each day, and then write down how these words written thousands of years ago hit you and me in 2019 in our homes and our situations and our lives. And there is a verse that, that I loved this week. And it's one of those, like, you can just skip right by it and you're just like, blah, 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 okay, that happened, that was bad. Uh, and, and there's so much hope to it. Jesus is at a party a man at a man named Simon's house. And there's a really short description about Simon. It says, Simon is with Jesus, and Simon used to have leprosy. Blah, 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 this is what Jesus did. Leprosy in that day was a death sentence, not just physically, but relationally, financially, every single alley possible. Like, this was a death sentence for the guy. And what happened is he got, he got healed. And his death sentence got flipped over. It'd be like saying, we had a, church, we had a party today at a church, as a church, at the house of so-and-so used to have AIDS but doesn't have it anymore. Like that doesn't happen. That's a one-way diagnosis. But what Jesus comes in, what Jesus does is he comes in and he gives us the potential to have a past life. That this is the party of such and such and he used to be an alcoholic. This is a couple, blah, 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 and they used to be headed for divorce. This is a son, this is a daughter who used to hate their parents. This is a family that used to be in disarray. That used to be, that used to be, that used to be, that has been healed now. Because God redeems our past and restores our future. And you say, well, what can I do? I mean, you don't understand how messed up my life is. Even if God comes in and does a miracle, I still have this and this. I don't have anything. You know what you have? You have a pulse. You have a pulse. And what God can do with a pulse is way better than what you and I can do by trying our way through life. Because God comes in with comfort and ability to redeem our past and restore our future. And as we trust God with our future, God leads us forward into a life lived without fear. Verse 13 says, I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Your chariots will soon go up in smoke. Your young men will be killed in battle. Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. This is God telling Judah that that country that had you under their boot, that's going to stop. And the generation after generation after generation that's lived in bondage is going to stop. So you have no reason to fear. I think for all of us, we have reasons to be fearful of things throughout our entire life. My son starts school in eight days. We are counting down because it's going to be awesome for him. I pray for his teacher. Uh, but, but it's going to be great for us. And, and I didn't know, like, what, what's Micah going to be afraid of? Because he's a pretty fearless kid. You saw him trying to climb on the stage when everybody else is supposed to be on the carpet. There was one kid who was trying to get on the stage during prayer time. Mine. Okay. Uh, and so we're, 
Anna and I are sitting at the table, and Micah comes up to, to us, and he's like, what if I go to school, and the only person who likes me is my teacher? I'm thinking, if your teacher likes you, that's really good, because I've lived with you for five and a half years. <laughs> so, I mean, you're in kindergarten, and you're like, what if the teacher is the only one who likes me? You get older, and you're like, what if, what if none of my friends like me? You hit junior high, and you're like, what if my friends don't talk to me anymore? Because, you know, it's a new school, new place, everything. You hit high school, and you're like, what if that girl or that guy doesn't like me? You get to the end of high school, and you're like, what if I have nowhere to go after college? You get into college, you do college, you, you major in something, you get a degree with something, and you're like, what if I can't get a job? You get a job, and you're like, what if this isn't the right job for me? You meet someone, what if this isn't going to work out? You get married, you have kids, what if the kids aren't going to be okay? They grow up, what if nobody's going to like my kid? What if the only person who likes my kid is the teacher? And then that whole cycle starts all over again. What if, what if my grandkids are better than my kids? And I mean, I'm not as good of a parent as I was, to, whatever. Like we have things to be fearful for our entire life. And what Jesus is saying is for some of you, that, that's going to end. For all of us, that's going to end. Because fear is like skin, all right? The more we grow, the more we go through life, it's just going to stretch with us. It's going to change with us. There's never going to be a point where all of us get a skin implant and we just get to start over. The question is, are we going to allow our fear to manage our life, or are we going to let Jesus manage and conquer our fear? So God's comfort is good because he leads us into a future without fear, and how he does that in one way, is he cuts off generational sins so that future generations don't live under the oppression that we live under. They don't live under the sin that we live under. There are things that we've done that, that we've brought into our own lives as parents and, and as family members that we're praying the future generation never experiences. As part of the generation that grew up where internet pornography became normal, where it became harder to avoid porn than it is to find porn, one of the things I pray for is that my son never knows that. I pray that he's better at following Jesus as a testosterone-filled man uh, than I am. We pray that our kids never struggle with alcoholism the way that we have. We pray that our kids never have the marital fights and stuff that we have. We pray that our kids have a better relationship with their parents than we have. Whatever it is that you feel in your life has been passed down to you from generation to generation and then has landed on you, that's an opportunity for us to invite God's comfort, to invite God's goodness, to invite God's power, to invite God's future into our situation, to bring life where there has been death, where we have experienced life. Our prayer is that the next generation does not experience that. This is a message of life from Jesus, and for us, that the day of life is here. And we can ask God, all right, God, this is what you've conquered in my life. Can you conquer it in my next generation's life before it even happens, before it even begins? Win that battle while the teams are still in the dugout. And the sixthly, God's comfort is good because God is the defender of the oppressed. Chapter 3, verse 1, what sorrow awaits Nineveh? He's talking about what, this is going to be bad for this country that's oppressed so many people through murder, through stealing, through lies, through teaching them to worship idols, through pride and arrogance in themselves that ignores, ignores and abuses other people. Even through the ability to make common citizens, to make flesh and blood people seem anonymous. 
There's one point in here where he says, you're going to die and no one's going to show up to mourn. That's part of the oppression. That's part of the way that these people have been held down. And God is saying that the day of the oppressed is going to be a day of victory. And wherever you fall on that list, there's a God who cares about you and wants to show you that today. There's a God who cares about us and wants to show us that today. He's a God who puts back together what's been broken. He's a God that puts back together what we've broken. Puts back together what's been broken and then kind of thrust on us in the lives that we have grown up into and the decisions that we made that we thought were good that turn out bad. And for all of us, God calls us to life, not death. And he has a word for each of us today. We're putting ourselves at, at the, under the blessing of God to say, Lord, how do you want to speak to me today? How do you want to defeat fear in my life? How do you want to redeem my past in my life? How do you want to restore my future in my life? God, how do you want to crush the enemies that I've brought into my life and, and the enemies of, of your work in my life? How do you want to show me that you love me and that you care about me? So I'm going to invite the prayer ushers to come up. And this is our moment to, to respond. It's not anything weird. We're saying, okay, God, what do you want to say to me today? Because if there's one thing that's true, it's that as complicated as it seems, if you run the numbers, God knows each and every one of us individually. God looks at you this morning. And, you know, he doesn't use those terms that we use when we don't remember somebody's name. Hey, girl, what's up, dude? How's it going, bro? looks at you and says your name because God loves you, because God knows you, that God has a future for you that is bright and screams, I love you. God is part of an I love you family. More than we could ever handle, ask, or imagine, that's God. And so what we want to do today is put ourselves under the, the faucet of his blessing to say, okay, God, how do you want to communicate your love to me today? What do you want to highlight in my life today that you see, that you know, that you understand better than anyone else? And how do you want to use that to, to show me your love today? Let's stand and let's pray.